Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas. Here's Culture Map Food Editor, Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly podcast that devotes itself to Houston's bar and restaurant scene. I am your host, Culture Map Food Editor, Eric Sandler. We have Lori Choi and Aaron Smith-Fegis from the I'll Have What She's Having pop-up series coming up in a little bit. But first, I am joined this week by my friend Mary Clarkson the owner of La Olivier Restaurant in Montrose. Mary, welcome back. How are you? I'm great, Eric. I'm happy to be here with you. (laughs) Thanks for coming. Let's dive right into the news of the week. Obviously, coming off of Thanksgiving, not a ton of news, but I do kind of want to hit the highlights, starting with what had been the most popular story on Culture Map last week, which, of course, there's there's schadenfreude. It's a very powerful (laughs) motivation for clicking links on a website, apparently. Uh, Liberty Kitchen announced that they have closed their Garden Oaks location. This was only open for about a year. It suffered from a few sort of situational forces that were maybe beyond the control of its ownership group, Feed Texas. Uh, There was street construction in the area for a long time that hindered access to the restaurant. They rebranded it this summer. They added a beer garden, made it a little more casual, tried to bring it into line with its neighborhood. And then right after they did that, uh, Hurricane Harvey happened. So those sort of dual threats to its existence were enough to doom it. I don't I don't I don't know that there's a whole lot to say about this, but but we keep talking about high profile restaurant closings, uh Holly's closed, Salter Seafood Kitchen closed. It seems like like booking you as the co-host is a harbinger that another restaurant is going to close. Oh it seems gosh. like you're the guest that I talk about closings with. Thanks, Eric. Uh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> so, Mary, let me just ask you, what are you hearing out there? Are we are we kind of done, or do you think that there's more coming before the end of the year? I think a couple of things. First of all, there's definitely more coming. Um, I hear whispers on a daily, weekly basis. I wish that was not the case, but it's a really tough environment. People are having a hard time. Back, you know, uh, bouncing back from Harvey. And if you weren't a sports bar, World Series hurt a lot of people too, and you weren't downtown. So those kind of combined forces. I mean, for me, Liberty Kitchen, I think of the 11th Street location on Studio Wood, like that's kind of the mothership for me. And maybe that was too close, even though it's really not that close. I don't know. Um, I think restaurant groups that expand, like Saltaire, for example, I think maybe, you know, they lessened they weakened their brand by opening Saltaire and pulled away from B19 so I think that's maybe one thing restaurateurs and restaurant groups need to pay attention to but there's there's definitely more coming down the line well I will say I had dinner recently at the memorial location in the in the treehouse on Bunker Hill uh, with their chef their culinary director Lance Vegan he seems more committed than ever to the Liberty Kitchen concept 
Uh, they've tweaked the menu a little bit. I think with three locations, uh, the original in the Heights, then the one in the River Oaks area on San Felipe, and then this slightly newer one on Bunker Hill, that they've got three solid neighborhoods that will support what they're doing, that like that kind of upscale mm-hmm. comfort food. I think they're in a good position to stabilize. Uh, I'm not sure how many more Liberty Kitchens we're going to see down the road. I think it's a good concept, and I think maybe if they just take a moment and pause and wait for the right opportunity, they'll they'll do just fine. All right, and then you may have – I know you're an Uchi regular. You may have noticed there's a building <laughs> going up across the street. I have. I drive by it every day on my way to work. So – it has been announced that's going to be the second location of Velvet Taco. And then it's getting a dessert concept called Chills 360. This is a Dallas-based ice cream shop that specializes in the Thai-style rolled ice cream that was an Instagram sensation about a year ago. What's interesting to me is that the restaurant is led by a pastry chef so that the, the quality of their ice cream is probably a little better. I talked to my colleague Teresa Gubbins uh, from Culture Map Dallas. She's a huge fan of Chills 360. Says it's been a sensation that they have lines out the door on a pretty regular basis. I like that it's going to be open until 4 a.m. Like on the weekends. Yeah. Late night ice cream, right? <laughs> oh Where God. do you go for late night ice cream? You go to Katz's and then go there for ice cream all within a block. <laughs> yeah. So Mary is a, is a Montrose restaurant owner. Rolled ice cream. I, I mean, there, there's not a lot of ice cream options in Montrose. I mean, I may have had BBs this past weekend at 2.30 a.m. Um, you know, there's not a lot of ice ice cream options in Montrose. This sounds good, and that's a good fit for that spot. I don't know about Velvet Taco. It's not my, my jam, but the ice cream spot sounds great. Yeah, those, those, um, those gringo taco places, Torchy's Velvet. Mm-hmm. Taco Deli, you know. I like my authentic. Yeah, I like my tacos a little more traditional, but Velvet has been an undeniable success in Washington, and it makes sense that they would come to an area with a lot of other bars and late-night traffic. It's a, you know, I think it's going to do just fine whether (laughs) I eat there or not. You're probably right. All right, and then, like I said, it's a a slow week for news, so I wanted to look ahead just a little bit. Uh, I noticed that Thrillist already did their list of the best new restaurants of 2017. Uh, Mary, we still have a month to go. Yeah, that's a little early. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they're on vacation it's for a, the next four it, weeks. Premature blogging. <laughs> um, and I, I gave you a list of new restaurants that are going to, that, that I think are likely to open in the next month or so. Uh, we, we went to Maison Pucha Bistro. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But of the stuff that has yet to open, which by my count includes Nancy's Hustle, uh, Emmeline, Mastro's, Willie G's, and Doris Metropolitan. Okay. What are you most looking forward to? Of the list that you have provided me, I would be most looking forward to Emmeline for food and Mastro's for dinner and a show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What a, What about, well, we had uh, Sam Gavinale and, and the Chef Dimitri on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago. It finally looks like that's coming to fruition. But what about Emmeline has you intrigued? The chef. I mean, the chef's great. Um, he's super talented. He hails from New York. Uh, I'm excited about his take on 
his interpretation of, of food for Houston that's going to be a good fit. Um, the space is beautiful. It's a good location. Uh, I think it's a nice partnership between front of the house and back of the house. And that's kind of more my speed of dining. So I'm excited to see what they're going to do. Well, and I got to look inside Nancy's Hustle over the weekends, the new restaurant from Sean Jensen and Jason Vaughn. We know Sean, of course, from Public Services. He was uh, he was at Hay Merchant for a long time. And, of course, he and Jason uh, were on the opening team for Alice Blue, did a little consulting for that. Uh, Nancy's Hustle is maybe more true to the kind of food that they want to cook. Jason has an extensive resume uh, from the Hog Salt Restaurant Group in Chicago. He worked at L2O which is a Michelin-starred seafood restaurant. He worked for Michael Mina. So he's got this super fine dining, really sharp resume. Um, Nancy Tussle is a kind of casual neighborhood spot on in East Downtown, which is an area that, that I don't spend that much time in. But as I drove there, I noticed there's all kinds of apartments and townhouses in the area. It's a neighborhood that doesn't really have a destination restaurant, doesn't really have like it's, equivalent of and and i don't i don't want to put too high expectations on them but but you know something in the sort of southern goods riel roost nobies kind of elevated neighborhood restaurant genre and i think nancy sussel could be a real game changer for them and i am super excited to eat there you're going to be spending more time in that neighborhood it's going to rapidly transform yeah i mean i am already spending time there going to seaside poke uh, of course, hanging out at events at our beloved sponsor, Eighth Wonder Brewery. We know that the Agricole Group is coming there early next year at some point. Chapman and Kirby uh, nightclub, not not really my personal scene, but I <laughs> I respect what they're building over there. Uh, and Papa Charlie's Barbecue right near uh, Dynamo Stadium. So no shortage of places to go already in Edo, and that's only going to get better and better. And Nancy's Hustle is kind of the next element of that all right so that does it for our quick news of the week we will be right back to talk about maison pucha bistro stick around you're listening to what's eric eating so for our restaurant of the week we are going to discuss maison pucha bistro this is the new french restaurant in the heights from veteran chef manuel pucha and his brother's pastry chef Victor and a sommelier slash mixologist named Christian. They're working with longtime Houston front of the house fixture Shepard Ross on that. He's done some consulting for them. And if you, you go to Maison Pucci, you will see Shepard patrolling the dining room, introducing the Pucci brothers to the neighborhood since he was a glass wall forever. And he knows those people very well. Mary, you you own a French restaurant. I do. La Olivier in the Heights. You're very familiar with French food. What did you think of our meal at Maison Pucha? You know, I was pleasantly surprised. The food was really, really good, I thought. Um, the space is massive, and that always scares me for a, a locally owned you know, smaller uh, type neighborhood restaurant. Uh, the main thing for them is the Heights is going to have to embrace them. And if they do, they'll succeed. But the Coca Van I had was very authentic. It was a rich dish, but it's supposed to be. Uh, the appetizers we had were very good. I thought um, the tortel- we had uh, tor- lobster tortellini and 
Uh, the pasta was wonderful and the flavors were good. It needed a little bit of seasoning, but nothing nothing crazy. And what did you have? So we had the tableside steak tartare. That's right. Which I always enjoy. I'm a sucker for tableside anything. I always like steak tartare. I thought the Presentation version. Was yeah, I, I enjoyed watching him make it. I thought the, the quality of the beef, they're using that heart brand beef, the Zakahushi cattle. Um, also for their steak frites and their their filet mignon. I thought the quality of the beef was very good. Um, and that's the nice thing about the tableside preparation is, you know, if you take a little bite of it and you think it needs salt or an extra, you know, turn to the pepper mill, they're right there. They can knock that out for you. No, the, you know, the presentation was great. The quality of the meat was very good on that. Um, I really enjoyed that. And the service was very good as well last night. Well, yeah, we're a known quantity, so we're not going to get. But, but I, I mean, I was looking around. I, I thought... Everybody was getting a pretty high level of service. I agree. So the interesting thing, uh, so and I had the, I had duck confit, which had a really great crispy skin. The duck was super well rendered. It came with these unbelievably addictive, like roasted potatoes that neither one of us could get enough of. And then the desserts. I mean, we had that uh, white chocolate, black chocolate souffle. That's that's one of Victor's signature items. We that had a delicious. selection of macaroons and chocolates and mm-hmm. that we really liked we had a tarte tan that maybe like is a very good version um <laughs> and the only reason that it wasn't outstanding is because we had been spoiled by <laughs> tell them the truth Eric. by jose hernandez's version at lucien which is like the best in the town best, the period best in town period I'll, I'll admit it and i have one on my menu it's the best in town <laughs> uh and a, and a chocolate cake that i really enjoyed so i i think they're they're really onto something i think the prices uh, pretty reasonable for the neighborhood. High twenties, low thirties for the entrees. Apps in the teens. I mean, it's. I would. I would love it. Like, maybe ten or fifteen percent less expensive. But the wine list is is very affordable. Shepherd's been. Shepherd did a good job of putting that thing together. There's a lot of glasses in the how's, ten twelve dollar range. How's the lunch menu pricing? Because I didn't get to see that last. So time. they haven't they haven't started lunch or brunch yet. So that's okay. coming. So we'll see. Um. But this is a neighborhood that I think has, has embraced some new concepts. Um, they're supporting Presidio. They're supporting Field and Tides. I think, you know, I think, I think the most important thing is that it doesn't feel like a fine dining restaurant. Manuel worked for at Philippe and then a table on Post Oak, which became La Tab. So his background is really in fine dining. Um, my, big, my biggest concern for them is that they maintain a perception that they're not fine dining or even even semi-fine dining because I feel like in this day and age, it scares people. Yeah, and I just don't think the Heights is going to support a, a French fine dining restaurant. I agree. So that it's, it's relatively casual. Um, you know, I'm not saying come in in a T-shirt and shorts necessarily. I don't think that would be appropriate. Have but Jeans and a shirt. Yeah, jeans you know? and a nice shirt for, for guys and ladies, whatever... Uh, Whatever your version of that is, I don't. I don't pretend to tell. I don't pretend to tell women how to dress. Let's talk about women's fashion. No, let's let's not talk about women. Let's that's that's Clifford Pugh's uh, podcast. I'm not. I'm not weighing in on that. But I, I will say, you know, the goal is to be able to have the casual weeknight dinner there, and also to come for like a date night or a birthday. And I do feel like you could do both of those things at Maison Pucha. I agree. So, will you go back? I will go back. I'm probably going to wait until they open for lunch or brunch because I want to see what that version 
looks like for them. Will you take Chef Olivier? Yes, I will. All right. And then uh, before we wrap this up, I know you've got a big wine dinner coming up at the restaurant. Why don't you tell people what's going on? A little bit about that. Okay, so every year we do a Rotor Champagne wine dinner. This is my favorite dinner of the year, mainly because it's in the holiday season and the way that we do this dinner. Um, We do large formats of our champagne for this dinner. Um, Those of you that know, uh, champagne is better in a larger format. And we saber a lot of them, the distributors in town. He's one of our favorite people uh, in the business, Dominique Moran. And it's uh, always a a fun, festive event. So I hope y'all will come out. Uh, Cristal is on the menu. Not that I would normally like flaunt that but uh it's thursday december 14th at 7 p.m and it's 175 bucks a person you get really generous pours for each course and um you get to taste through the whole rotor lineup so we're looking forward to it okay and you can see the menu at laolivierhouston.com you can and what's the phone number to make a reservation 713-360-6313 all right that does it for restaurants of the week we will be right back with aaron smith fegis and Lori Choi. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? Our interview this week is brought to you by our friends at Eighth Wonder Brewery, one of my favorite local breweries, conveniently located in East Downtown. I mean, you can find Eighth Wonder on tap walls and on store shelves all over the city, but there is something really special about visiting the brewery, whether it's for a soccer game or a baseball game, you know, certainly with the local baseball team in the playoffs, it's, it's going to be an exciting fall here in Houston, and there's really no place better to go before a game than Eighth Wonder Brewery. You can have a couple of pints, maybe AstroTurf, their dry-hopped cream ale that's new and in stores, or maybe their Side Hustle, which is a barrel-aged version of Haterade, their Goza. And of course, one of the fun things about going to Eighth Wonder's Brewery is that you have the Eatsy Boys food truck there. They have a new menu full of all sorts of new things to try. And just recently, they added David Attic's 36-foot-tall statues of the Beatles. John, Paul, George, and Ringo rendered in concrete in their Sgt. Pepper gear. And if you're a real Beatles fan, you'll notice that they're not positioned as they would have been on stage. I think that may be done just to infuriate hardcore Beatles fans, or maybe it's an accident, I don't know. But definitely check out 8th Wonder. Have a beer, have a bite from the YouTube boys, and enjoy this uh, fall weather that we all know is right around the corner. Thank you to 8th Wonder, and here is our interview of the week. I am joined this week by Chef Aaron Smith-Fegis and Lori Choi. They are from the I'll Have What She's Having pop-up. Lori, I think people in the culinary world may know you a little bit, but why don't you just introduce yourself and sort of explain how you got involved in a in a chef's pop-up series? Well, that's a long story, I think. I married into the industry. I was in medical school in New York when I met this young up-and-coming chef who promised to follow me anywhere I matched for training because he said he could cook anywhere. And that turned out to be Houston. And so Ryan Pear and I moved to Texas in 2003, and we've been here ever since. So we have, I think, Baylor College of Medicine to thank for some great restaurants, some of my favorites. Uh, But with that, I spent a lot of time in that world and got to know a lot of great people. And 
they're my friends now. Like, I think that they're some of my very good friends. And it was just through conversations, talking about things that were important to us, things that we would like to see happen. And it was just very organically that the organization began. And then, Erin, All Have What She's Having is focused on a couple of different missions. Uh, one is promoting women's health issues. One is giving female culinary talent, uh, kind of the next generation of female culinary talent, uh, a platform for exposure and opportunities to kind of cook their food on a, on a stage for diners. How did, you get, how did you get involved in this? So Lori approached me over the summer, um, probably around July sometime, and I know she'd already spoken to a few other chefs as well. And that was the first time we'd met before, but that was the first time we've ever sat down and had a drink together. And we, you know, we're just casually talking and she is telling me about I'll have what she's having, which at the time was not a formalized organization yet. It was an ideal. And, you know, she had a mission to really get this thing started. And I believed in everything she was talking about. And I I knew immediately I wanted to be involved. I didn't know what the capacity for that was going to be. Um, but she presented a lot of things, and I looked at them as opportunities. Like, these are issues that are facing society, but particularly women today. And we both felt like our industry was being affected probably the most, you know, disproportionately more affected by the way healthcare was going to be handled in the future because we have less insurance coverage provided by the employer. So I felt like it was this opportunity where we have the ability to come together and create a large voice for ourselves. And in that community that we were creating, it became obvious that there's you know, all of these women, these professional women in the restaurant industry who don't get together regularly, don't see each other often, and may or may not have a good viable mentor. So that, you know, really kind of prompted this need for let's do these dinners and let's really promote the names that we don't hear as often. You know, let's take somebody who's a line cook and have them create all the entrees. And and it really is that. I mean, the the credit really does need to go back to the cooks that are doing these dinners because I've been really impressed by the food that's been put out, and I think it just keeps getting better and better. And f- for in most cases, it's the first time that person has had their name on a dinner. You know, Madeline Lester did the Underbelly dinner. She nailed it. Caitlin Steets has done a dinner. Nailed it. We've, you know, we've had some bakers, um, Valerie Chassati and Andrea uh, Duke. I'm going to butcher her last name, DeGortry, who've done phenomenal stuff. You know, Karen Mann, who's a name we all recognize, has been pretty involved as well. And, you know, she blows it away. But I think that this organization, along with these pop-ups, are opportunities for us to really do something, but also to get together and create a community for ourselves. And then, Laurie, let me come back to you. What what is it about the cause of women's health that, attracted that, that drew you and, and made this seem like the the forum for raising mm-hmm. some awareness about it well I myself have always been interested in women's health I became a surgeon but when I was in medical school my mentor was a gynecologist in the public health system in Brooklyn and she had been working since before Roe v. Wade and she really she took me to some rallies um, 
and and ex- and which I really came to understand the dramatic public health changes that have taken place overnight with the passage of one law. And despite that, and, and perhaps because of that, I felt that there really was, weren't these great thresholds to be crossed in that field anymore. And I was really drawn towards surgery. Now, um, in my work, I've come to realize that if it's not for daughters, wives, and sisters, the elderly patients that I do my operations on are not going to work. So I find it more and more important to engage the family in helping take care of whoever it is I'm operating on. And if there's, if there's not a woman involved, honestly, Eric, I kind of have a sinking feeling because it's this woman who's the glue. So oftentimes she's taking care of three generations and a full-time job. And I just have come to realize that if we don't take care of this woman, the, the repercussions are vast, way beyond anything I'm going to be able to prove to you with science. But every surgeon I know feels the exact same way. And it's time that we started to pay attention. Uh, we're seeing the cracks now. Um, the biggest one, I think, is uh, we've seen a doubling of the maternal mortality rate in the last two years. So that Texas women die with pregnancy at a higher rate than anywhere in the country. And in fact, it's the highest in the developed world. Now, Texas is famous for many things, things that we can be proud of. But the fact that our mothers have the poorest rate of surviving pregnancy is not something that we should be bragging about. It's something that we should really be looking at and saying, what's happened? And unfortunately, um, the last uh, we've seen a lot of changes um, of, in terms of the attention but we're not seeing the changes which I think would have the most immediate effect, which would be to improve women's access to health care. Because if you're, if you're in a setting, getting care during early pregnancy, getting care after your pregnancy, those are the things that I believe are going to make a difference immediately in women's health while we continue to study the problem. And I, I, don't, I don't think of this as a, a political show, um, but you can't ignore the, the politics they're happening in Texas right now, um, restricting funding for organizations like Planned Parenthood, uh, the regulations on abortion facilities. I mean, all of this has an effect on the state of women's health. I, I mean, would you agree with that? It's hard not to ignore how politics is affecting it. And that, to me, is one of the most mind-boggling things. I go to work. I see hundreds of patients... And at n- never at any moment it, does it occur to me that the government is in any way going to interject itself in bes- between myself and my patient. On the other hand, my colleagues in women's health, I've had multiple discussions with them, and they talk about the hoops on fire that they have to leap through with their patient in order to deliver the care to them. And my brothers, my husband my nephew, they'll never face these problems when they are just going to their doctor. Yeah, there are no, there are no ultrasounds associated with uh, prostate exams or getting a prescription for uh, treatment for uh, uh, issues of male impotence, for example, right? There are... Currently, I'm not aware of any. Right. So if you, if you want the blue pill, you can probably find a urologist to, to write you the script without too much, uh, too much trouble. Um, Aaron, what about, 
so so what are some of the things that I'll have what she's having has done to promote the cause of women's health? I know you've had three pop-ups so far. Yeah, we, so we have the pop-ups and we'll continue to have pop-ups. It's really leading up to our big event, which is going to be a gala in April. And, you know, I think that the organization is really trying to do a lot of things um, on a big scale. We're trying to educate the public. We're trying to increase our membership. Um, we're, we're also just trying to be a voice that if you are in agreement that you can listen to. Um, but really, I think, you know, we're all about empowering women. Um, I would love to see more women take leadership positions in kitchens. And I think that there's a lot of reasons why we don't see that as often in this industry and in other industries. But at the basic core of what we can do is I think that you have to be healthy to be successful. I think it's one of the most important things. If you wake up and you feel good, you can go on with your day. You can, you know, set high goals for yourselves. But if you're not healthy, a lot of those things are just, there's so many barriers. So I want to promote women's health because I think it's important that women have that chance. I want to remove an obstacle. So what, I mean, because your career then is something of an anomaly. You, you, when I met you, you were the chef at Plonk. Mm-hmm. Uh, you worked with the Clumsy Butcher Group for a while uh, yeah. through the opening of Blacksmith and Haymerchant and Underbelly. Uh, you were the chef at the main kitchen at the JW Marriott downtown. And now you and your husband, Patrick, are working on opening a barbecue joint. Uh, what is it about your career maybe that's allowed you to be in those lead roles when not every woman gets that opportunity? I've thought a lot about that, actually. You know, I think it's really basic. I was raised with healthcare. I was raised with supportive parents. I, you know, have a good education. I went to college. And I took all of those things for granted until I started working in this industry and realized that that is not the norm for a lot of people. And those are the, those are the tools that I think helped give me confidence to succeed. Like, I've always reached for high positions. I've never... You know, lateral moves are not my thing. Um, I want each new opportunity to be just that, an opportunity. And so, but I think that there's an underlying level of confidence that you have to have in order to take those steps. And I think all those things that I just described have given me that confidence. Um, And not everybody has that. And not everybody has those resources or access to those resources. So what is your goal for I'll Have What She's Having in terms of giving women those opportunities? What how are you facilitating those, that goal? You know, I don't think it's about us giving anybody an opportunity. I think it's about us showing people the opportunities that are being presented to them and giving them the confidence to take advantage of that, you know, to seize the opportunity and to not shy away from something or be, you know, let fear kind of prevent you from doing something that you're scared of. Because if your job is scary, then you're doing the right thing. You know, you should always... If it's comfortable, you're getting complacent. Um, but, I, but I think that it's kind of like we were talking about we're doing a Girl Scouts thing. And um, it's that young age. Like, what can you do for a young girl? You know, what can we do for our young female chefs? You know, it's all the same. It's just about giving you the tools that you need for you to be successful. We're not providing an opportunity for you. We're just showing you what opportunities are out there and giving you some of the backbone to say, okay, I can do that or I'm going to take that risk or, you know, I'm going to do that thing that scares me because that's what you have to do to be successful. And then, Lori, I know I know the, the first four events so far have sold out very quickly. 
the response has been, from my perspective, very good. Um, are you encouraged by that, or or how do you feel knowing that that seems like diners in Houston have really embraced this so far? Well, Houston is such an amazing city in terms of our culinary world. We're always the the number of people who are interested in what's going on in our food scene is truly staggering, and I think that the response to the dinners just as an opportunity to try the food from our our, our next great chef um, is kind of irresistible. The response as well to whichever health cause or health issue we're highlighting at that time has also been incredibly uh, positive. I, I have to admit that some of those moments have been inspiring and in, in how positive they were. Our first pop-up, which was really in the wake of Harvey, we kind of were trying to regroup because we knew we'd have to reschedule our large, our largest fundraiser. And the plan for pop-ups had actually been put on the back burner. So we instead flipped it and decided to really run with the pop-ups first while um, engaging in, in Harvey recovery. And we kind of only had four days to market and sell the tickets for the event. And they sold out immediately. And um, the cause for that, um, the first cause was uh, to um, raise funds for women displaced by Harvey in greater Northeast Houston. We chose the Trinity Church of Christ, um, which was acting as a distribution center for Harvey Relief. And we asked all of our um, attendees to bring a box of feminine hygiene products to sort of draw um, awareness to the fact that these products were running in short supply in the Houston area. And certainly women who were busy packing up their families and, and saving their families' lives had not thought of this particular item to run out of the house with. And, and they were in short supply in relief centers as well. So I wasn't really sure that people were going to pay attention to that portion of the instructions for the dinner. But if you'd seen the pile of feminine products piled up on the cultivary bar that day, I'm sure it would have been. It was really yeah. quite a sight to behold. It was pretty amazing. And seeing men come in and put their box of tampons. <laughs> yeah, that's like the famous joke, right? That, you know, a guy has to walk into a, a drugstore and, and buy a box of tampons for his significant other. It's, it's like, you know, it's like the most embarrassing thing a man can do or whatever. But. Yeah. Well, and so imagine this. You're buying a box of tampons and you're, and you're paying a ticket to go to a dinner so that you can support us. And seeing the number of people that came in and did that really, I think, showed us, because that was our first event, it showed us that we were doing something right, because we saw a lot of that. Um, I know your December dinner is already sold out. Yes. Uh, what do you have? What's, what's next? So we're planning something. Um, this is, I think it's going to be great. So we have Monica Pope, Jody Stevens, and Patty Burdett. Um, Patty's at Uchi? Um, she was formerly at Holly's. Okay, sorry. Um, she may have been at Uchi at some point as well. Uh, but so she's kind of in between some things. I, I don't want to speak for her. I actually don't know where she's working right now. Um, but we're really excited about that dinner. Um, or actually, sorry, it's a brunch. We're switching things up. Ooh. Ooh. Um, so yeah, and we're talking to Anita from Pondicherry um, and some of our other talented members about doing an event in February. 
And then just talk a little bit about, I know you haven't announced the details for the gala, but kind of what's that going to be like, do you think? I'm going to default to Lori on this because she spent a lot more time thinking about the gala. Well, all of this was pre-Harvey, and I kind of thought we might shrink our plan after the storm, but in fact, the response just continues to grow. So it's a very elaborate plan in that we're going to have a pre-cocktail event um, with some of our city's bar stars who, as you already know, they're a tight community of really talented female bartenders and um, bar owners. And they're going to be putting on, um, putting out cocktails um, and we'll be having small bites. So that's a separate ticketed event, which will take place in the afternoon. And then after that, we sort of have a two-tiered dinner. Um, one's a sit-down, um, multiple courses, and the other is a picnic in the field. Um, so we have so many women who have come to us via the, the website to volunteer and want to be involved um, that we're going to be able to utilize all this talent by having um, this multi-tiered um, staged event. And then I know ultimately your goal is to raise a million dollars. What what will that kind of money do for women's health in Houston? It's not going to do, it doesn't cover the deficits that we've seen um, in any shape or form. It is a, a number which I think draws attention to how seriously uh, Houston um, citizens take the problem. So I think that for a first-time fundraiser, it's ambitious, and how close we come on that yardstick is important to to all of us, I think. But really, for me, the more important uh, measure is how how many people we've been able to touch with this message about how the women that are close to us are being affected by these changes, and it's hard. That's harder to measure, uh, but the money it, it's. It's going to help. We know that um, the changes um, from the 2011 Texas legislature, which really dropped the um, plan- the family planning budget by over 70 million, um, had a huge impact. Multiple pl- clinics closed. Um, women who go to clinics now, who are who were previously having subsidized care, are now being asked to pay more. So we're hoping that that's going to be able to uh, make healthcare affordable at least for a short time for some of the women in need. And then Aaron, what, what are you hearing from, from other women in the, in the food industry about this opportunity? I mean, are you, it's, it's amazing. So we, when we first spoke about this, we were both anticipating that there would be a little, you know, resistance um, to get involved. And we have experienced the opposite. We are, we used to recruit and I think now people are coming to us at such a high rate that we don't really recruit anymore because we're so busy just trying to reach out to the people that have come to us and said we want to get involved. And it's been amazing. I mean, there's just, it's, there's so many people that want to be involved in our organization that it really kind of re-energizes us every time we feel like we're exhausted or, you know, you just kind of lose your momentum a little bit. And then you get an email from somebody that says, we love what you're doing. I want to do it. And, and they're all organizations, chefs that have, you know, big brands behind them. There's 
you know, people that are just up and comers, it's everybody. And we've even had some men reach out to us. Um, so we're, you know, we're kind of trying to f- figure out how we want to approach that because we do not want to be exclusive. We, we want to embrace um, anybody that wants to be a part of what we're doing. So it's been pretty amazing. And I think it's not what I expected. I did expect to have a lot more pushback, but I'll take this. <laughs> let, let me ask you about um, another issue related to women in the culinary field. Obviously, since the Harvey Weinstein news has come out, um, men in all walks of life have been um, accused of sexual harassment or, or maybe called to account for their bad behavior over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly New Orleans has been rocked by the news about John Besh. We have not had an equivalent figure in the Houston culinary world. I don't, I don't have any reason. I'm not, I'm not trying to tar anyone. I don't think there's anyone necessarily coming but are you are you hearing from women on that issue and and is that kind of another facet of maybe the the community that you're building as a as a resource for women who are concerned about that certainly um this is not news to any woman that has worked in a kitchen the john best story um was not a shock to any of the women that i know because we've experienced it and i think that it's not about targeting individuals. It's about looking at the industry as a whole and how, we're, how we approach it. And this goes back to what I'm talking about, about bringing more women up into these leadership positions because part of the problem is that it's an industry that's been male-dominated for so long, as so many industries are. Um, but I would like to see more women in leadership roles because I think you start to change the culture a little bit. Um, and I think that it's about professionalism and you know forcing people to set a standard for themselves as a leader and then, you know, enforce that standard on their staff. Um, And within our organization, we keep talking about the community that we are providing. And I think that that community is a place where you can come and feel safe and comfortable and talk about things that are happening. And certainly treatment at work, whether it be sexual harassment or just, you know, feeling like you don't have, you know, a group that you can talk to. We want to provide a sanctuary for that. And then, obviously, you and Patrick are working on opening your own restaurant. Are you thinking about employment policies that will facilitate health care and parental leave and all that kind of stuff? I mean, I, I know yes. on the, the margins, I know that can be really difficult. It is really difficult. Um, we, we've said from the beginning that we really wanted to try to do what we could. I, healthcare has always been really important to me. Before I knew Lori, you know, as I was growing up, um, I can't really even tell you where that comes from, but I think it's just my parents always saying, if you're not going to have healthcare for yourself, then we will go bankrupt if something happens to you, so don't do that to us. Um, so, But it's always been important to me. I've really tried never to go without it, which has been very expensive in the recent years. Um, but I, I think quality of life is important for us to provide for our employees. And I think part of that is being able to provide some type of healthcare option. We've done a ton of research and it is not affordable for us to be able to provide it, like to subsidize any type of insurance at this point. Um, but we definitely are always thinking about being able to do that in the future. And I am looking at ways that we can, um, you know, maybe pay at a slightly higher rate 
that might kind of compensate a little bit. But to be honest, it's just the price of healthcare is so high right now. If it was more affordable, we would be able to do it. And, and mo- more, more people would be able to do it. You would see it more often. Um, but yeah, quality of life, I think, is huge. And I think that's part of it. And then, Lori, are you, I mean, are you working with chefs and restaurateurs? I mean, do they, on access to healthcare and, and things that they can do for their staffs to facilitate that? Is that, is that maybe kind of a side goal of, of this organization? Right. And this really comes straight from Karen Mann. She's kind of really continues to challenge me in terms of what, what this group can accomplish for ourselves. She's very demanding uh, that we be very educated, and we've made that a huge component. But to know what resources are available to us um, as an uninsured individual or someone trying to enter the marketplace, I'll tell you that I think that there is a safety net available um, through organizations like Planned Parenthood and Legacy Healthcare for our our needs um, as women for annual well woman exams, um, birth control, uh, screening tests. Those are available to us at a, at a reasonable cost. Um, the things that Aaron refers to, um, and which is always forever on my mind for this age group, is that uh, a surprise, an accident, a trauma, which is the most likely uh, threat to a person of the and of a young age, is would be devastating. It would be it, it wouldn't be something that we could, uh, we, or anyone of any financial means could recover from because those bills would be too high. So it certainly is a goal for us to be able to find some way to provide that safety net, um, not just to people in our group, but really to everyone in the hospitality industry, because it's something which is neglected. Um, we've allowed it to be neglected in the hospitality industry. And uh, my friends that I'm talking to, including Aaron, has made me more aware of how we need to try to overturn that. A long-term goal. Uh, I have to say, usually at the end of these interviews, I... I have five silly questions that I call the lightning round. I'm not, I'm not totally sure whether or not that's appropriate given the seriousness of the subject. Um, I think we can lighten it up a little bit. You want to lighten it up a little bit? All right. Good. I, I, unless there's, there's some other aspect of this that, that you would like to discuss before I, before we end on a, on a slightly lighter note. No, I think you asked really good questions. Well, thank you. I agree. All right. (laughs) In that case, in that case, um, I have five very silly questions for you. Uh, short answers. Please just say the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, Lori, I'm going to start with you. Uh, what's the first concert you ever attended? Alabama. Aaron? Gloria Estefan. <laughs> uh, I think my parents couldn't find a babysitter. <laughs> who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? J.J. Watt. Oh, I have to go with Jose Altuve right now. What is your favorite place to get a taco? Tacos Tierra Caliente. Wow. Taco night at my household is definitely the best taco in the region, if not the world. Uh, See, I I think you're going to be in trouble if you don't say Aero Flint for this. Aero Flint is a close second. Uh, but taco night at my house with Chef Ryan Para at, in the kitchen is pretty damn good. Uh, 
what is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a drive through Oh, Whataburger number 13 with barbecue sauce. What is the number 13? That is the chicken strip meal. Ah, yes. Okay. Lori's like, I don't eat fast food. <laughs> I mean, there's everyone has to stop at fast food from time to time. And ever since I was in high school, it was the McDonald's cheeseburger. And uh, what is your favorite restaurant to take an out-of-town visitor to? Okay, I'm not saying this because you're in the room, Lori, but Cultivare. Is that because you get to jump the line because you're a big celebrity? I get to jump the line, but even if I would wait. When people are like, oh, it's a 45-minute wait, I'm like, it's worth it. Just wait. You're going to not regret it. It's one of the best meals in Houston. All right. Now, you can't say one of your husband's establishments for this. Oh, um, it's hard to limit it to just one. I you think that the really, obviously, if you just barbecue once, it's open. Um, but I have to say the showstoppers for me, for people who are really looking for something unique right now, would probably be tied between Pondicherry and One-Fifth. Very good. We can keep track of all that's going on with I'll Have What She's Having at I'll have what she's having.org, which I know is a mouthful, but I will link to it on Culture Map or on Instagram, IHWSH underscore TX. Uh, Aaron, we can follow you on Instagram at Purslane underscore Aaron. And of course, Fijis Barbecue for all the latest goings on with your upcoming restaurant. Yes. Eagerly anticipated. <laughs> uh, and I'll have you and Patrick back on to talk, to talk barbecue, uh, a slightly less serious topic, yes. uh, sometime in the new year. And uh, so thank you, ladies, for joining me. Uh, thank you to Mary Clarkson for sitting in on the first half of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at E. Sandler, on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest bar and restaurant news. This is your periodic reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on both iTunes and Google Play. Uh, as I say, it always helps us if you rate it and leave a comment. But like Katie Nolan always says, only if it's five stars and only if it's nice. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.